0: Welcome inside the Igloo. Episode two in season two had a great season premiere with Derek Gordon, and now we transition into episode two. And joining me from somewhere in middle America, as the Counting Crows famously said, uh, from White and Blue Review, Matt DeMarinis. Matt, pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks, Tim. It's glad to be on. Good to be on. Sorry.
0: Yeah. I appreciate so, you saying my last name right. That's
1: a tough, that, usually no one gets that right the first try. But Yeah, you know,
0: didn't. like, one of my main jobs is serving as a public address announcer in um, for a multitude of teams. Obviously, pronunciation is very, very important. That's something I key in on.
1: I think it's a, uh, I might credit some of your New York background there because it is, you know, an Italian nickname, so, or an Italian name, so. You know, probably just lead, you probably just leaned into probably, your roots there and it rolled off the tongue perfectly.
0: That makes sense. I mean, I'm not Italian myself, but, you know, it, you know, there's a lot of Italians around my area and obviously in around New York state, especially in the city. Um, sure. But this first time we actually get to talk to someone about Creighton hoops and, you know, getting a perspective to someone who covers the team. Um mm-hmm. This Creighton team a year ago projected to finish seventh in the Big East, and they shattered any and all expectations that they had. And non-conference play, you know, they showed signs of being good at 11-2, and but we saw them really hit their stride, you know, from the beginning of February all the way until the end of the season when COVID shut everything down. Um, Just from your perspective, uh, what was that growth like turning from – a team that, you know, was in the midst of possibly, you know, getting between like a four seed at maybe best to like a you know around a seven to being, you know, at the high end of a, a two seed come tournament time.
1: hmm Yeah, hey, you know, I think it goes back almost even like it goes back maybe two years. You know, when you look at when you look at uh you know preseason prognostications, they're usually Pretty heavily based off of where you kind of ended up the year prior so you know that seven spot to start with I guess in terms of a preseason prediction was kind of based off the results they had the year before you know they were kind of like a, a 500 big east team that you know had some extended losing streaks i think they had a couple streaks of 3 and 4 if i'm not mistaken i, had, I don't have the record for the schedule results have, i think they
0: might have lost 5 in a four or 5 in a row before they got on that five game win streak to end that 2019 regular season
1: yeah it was uh there was a, there were like the ups and downs were extended in both directions if you if that's fair to say so um there was a, you know there was inconsistency but it, when you looked at the nucleus of the team you know they were all in that you know, second year, third year range, but maybe in that first year of being in defined major rotation roles. So there was going to be a transition period for that nucleus. And I think once you saw them hit that stride in towards the end of the season and kind of put themselves in position to, you know, maybe be a bubble team for the NCAA tournament. um, If things go Things go their way in New York with a win or two um, to a high seed in the NIT, where you're hosting a couple weekends or hosting a couple games and, and advancing in that. So there was there was the building blocks were kind of laid there. You kind of saw that that group starting to click a little bit. Um, certainly, Marcus Zagorowski's health um, was a pretty big factor late in that February losing streak uh, with the broken hand and everything. And even throughout the season, he wasn't nearly 100%. Um, so it was, it was, he was kind of just doing what he could from a physical, physical standpoint. And then Tyshawn Alexander obviously missed the game at Villanova. They lost in overtime. So you could see that they were getting close, That the group was kind of getting better. Um, you know, when you're, when you're all kind of the same age and everything like that, you wonder how connected they're going to be. And that was kind of never really the issue. Once you saw them in preseason practice last year, even with uh, the injuries to Jacob Everson and Davion Mintz, you could see that that group was still pretty connected. And then, you know, if they got on the same page from a leadership standpoint and then the players that were kind of newer to the program followed in their lead, the lead of Tyshawn Alexander and, and Mitch Ballack and, and uh, Marcus Sigurowski that they were going to be able to go pretty far and, and do, and maybe surprise people that didn't think they'd have a lot of potential in the, in the preseason. So the maturation of that probably started the year before. Um, and then once they kind of got rolling in conference play, you know, they lost that home game to Villanova that they probably should have won. They played really poorly offensively. Um, some of that you can credit to Villanova, but that's a game that they probably, they, I think unanimously felt like they, they lost instead of Villanova won. if you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, so they, they, you know, they had, a, and they had a similar game at Georgetown where they lost a close game, but they felt like they should have, if they had, they played, you know, even, maybe their B game, they win that one and and they aren't, they aren't in a a one, two hole in the big East. Um, So they kind of just had to, you know, take one more step in terms of their maturation and then take things a little bit more seriously in in terms of their focus level and their attention to detail. Um, And then once they did that, they just kind of hit the ground running and, once it started clicking, when they were on that, when they were on their game, I mean, you kind of saw why they were a trendy pick towards the latter part of the season to possibly make a run to the Final Four, even though it's not something that they had done in their program before. Um, just the way they, just the way they rolled Butler, DePaul, um, the last ten minutes of the Seton Hall game, um, the versatility of that five-guard lineup to really be difficult to defend. Um, there was there was a lot. To be optimistic about in terms of their potential as they started to click towards the end of the season.
0: Yeah, and overall, I mean, I you talk about you know the final ten minutes of that Seton Hall game, um, you know, have you ever been in that kind of environment at the CHI Health Center that was that energized and like so on edge and ready to <laughs> explode in such a way that we saw you know on the final day of the regular season and the day they clinched a share of the regular season title in the Big East and the number one seed at the Garden the following week.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's really tough to n- nail this question down because you try to think about, you know, that building's been around since, I think, 2000, the 2003-2004 season. Um, and there certainly have been a lot of, like, energetic moments um, from that building, like, just, you know, you can think of the Wichita State senior game from um, 2013. Uh, there was a Rhode Island game and, and NIT game in 2008 um, that come to mind. Uh, certainly the, the Providence game where Marcus Zagorowski at the game winner. Um, the Providence game where Doug McDermott's senior night where he goes off for a career high and uh, eclipses 3,000 points. So, they're, like, there are some moments where it's, like, the building was popping and, and, and you're like, you know, I don't know. But the thing that stood out to me with the Seton Hall game was the sustained level of engagement from the fans. And I think that's what's probably going to be the memorable part of it was because – that I don't know if you remember the moment, but it was early in the game. I think maybe the second or third possession. It might have been the second possession. And, and Miles Powell comes off of like a, you know, a little, a little curl screen off the top of the key and he gets downhill towards the rim. And Tyshawn Alexander is trailing him um, and he pins him off the glass and it leads to a breakaway where Damian Jefferson uh, gets the ball and goes up for the dunk and kind of dunks it on Mamu um, yeah, with about- the, with, the, with kind of the late, the late contest there in transition. I mean, that when that happened, that whole sequence from the pin block to the transition dunk, um, that blew the roof off the building from maybe the second possession on. And the energy level that was kind of like exhibited in that moment was sustained throughout the rest of the game. I mean, every possession was a big time possession because the game was really nip and tuck until uh, up until Creighton ran away with it. When they put the small ball lineup in with 10 minutes to go or nine minutes left and ran away with it. The The game was pretty like, it was, you know, I don't think anybody had a lead bigger than what, six or seven, maybe. Um, So the game was, you know, every possession was pretty high intensity in terms of the energy level in the building and the energy level from the players on both sides. Um, And then obviously when Creighton started to get on a run, that just energizes the crowd even more because that was like the stretch run to a Big East title. So the fans, once once Creighton started rolling down the stretch, the fans kind of sensed history in the making and that just made the energy level ratchet up even more so. I think from that possession on where Tyshawn pinned Powell and, and, Damian, and Damian Jefferson dunked in the transition on the other end, um, that kicked it up a couple notches, and it sustained that way for the rest of the game. So I think the, the thing that sticks out with me and that will stick out with me when I look back on that game on that day is how the energy level in the building was consistent throughout. There weren't really lulls in terms of you know, crowd engagement. They were all pretty much – everybody in the building was pretty fired up from the jump at that point.
0: And it's going to be sad to, that, to realize that, you know, we're not going to have these moments, you know, with this upcoming season um, with COVID still going on, you know, you know, a lot of these memorable moments can be made, you know, partially due to crowd involvement and, you know, the pops that they generate, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it's going to be unfortunate uh, to, you know, not have that be a part of the college basketball season for the uh, foreseeable future. But overall, though, I mean, the buzz generated from an unexpected run to a share of the Biggie's regular season title, um, returning, you know, almost your entire core with the exception of Tyshawn Alexander, who left for the draft um, a year early, and uh, Davion Mintz, who didn't play at all last year, he transferred to do his grad season at Kentucky. But still, you have that core of that 2020 squad back with Marcus Zigorowski mm-hmm. as a frontrunner for Biggie's player of the year. Um, overall, what is the lo- hype like in Omaha around this team? And, you know, what are the aspirations, you know, in terms of, you know, does it feel a lot more realistic now than it did back in March um, of this of this year in terms of, Feeling like they have a legitimate chance, maybe even a better one now, to win a national championship.
1: Uh, national championship, I don't know. If Tyshawn had come back, I think you would have seen that be at the 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 level of maybe anticipation for that would be at unprecedented levels. When he when him leaving though, and um, we can talk about his departure a little bit um, in different subject, but. I think him leaving probably knocked it down a little bit to, you know, maybe get to the second weekend and see where the, where the ball bounces from there in terms of matchups, I guess. Cause that's something that Creighton hasn't done either. They've never been to the sweet 16 in the expanded format era. You know what I'm saying? So um, that's still something that, that fans want to want to cross off their bucket list is seeing a Creighton men's basketball team do that. Uh, I think with the, with, if I'm trying to describe what everybody's feeling about this season, it's probably a little bit angst because, if you, if you know Creighton's history, um, it's hard to not acknowledge the misfortune of their postseason or lack of postseason success, especially in the NIT tournament. You know, the 2016-17 season, they 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 were, you know, legitimately a top 10 like locked into a top ten team all season at full strength. Justin Patton, Marcus Foster, Kyrie Thomas, uh Maurice Watson Jr. running the show, leading the nation in assist with Lonzo Ball up there. <clears throat> uh, that group was I mean, that group was pretty special when they were when they were rolling. I mean the only loss before Maurice got hurt was at home to Villanova who was the reigning national yeah. champion. So e-
0: extremely underweight. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so you see, so that season was destined, destined, if you will, for something bigger than they had ever uh, accomplished before at a at a program level. And then Maurice Watson gets hurt um, out for the year with the torn ACL at Xavier, and and then and they just kind of like, you know, scratched and clawed their way to the NCAA tournament, got to the Big East championship against Villanova in New York, and and they kind of just made the most of of that situation. Um, after the injury, but so that, that was a little bit of a downer in terms of the potential not realized because of circumstances beyond their control. Um, Yeah. Doug McDermott senior year uh, where they go to Waco um, and lose to Baylor in the second round. San Antonio. Yeah. In the second, San Antonio by 30 points. Um, Yeah. So it's just like, and then Kyle Corver senior year, they win 29 games. Um, school record, and then they lose in the first round with with Duke waiting for them in the second. Um, so it's, and then last year, you know, they win the Big East title for the first time. You know, and then Marcus Agarowski tears his uh, tears his meniscus in like the last two possessions of the game, if you will, which ended his season. Um, so he wouldn't have played in the N.C.A.A. tournament at all. And then uh, obviously, <laughs> you're still like, okay, well. You know, does Creighton have enough pieces to at least get to the Sweet 16? Even though if the Final Four is likely off the table without Marcus, um, and then obviously the pandemic hits, where the um, NBA starts, NBA players start testing positive, they cancel their season, and then the the domino effect of college basketball following suit, and the NHL following suit, um, it just just was like, an, really, just another thing. Um, to halt a a Creighton's momentum that's beyond their control, you know what I'm saying? So I think with the way it's gone so far in terms of their recent history of having uh, the team, if you will, I just think angst is the best way to put it. Because right now, even with the dates that college basketball has set for itself, it's just – it's hard to – it's hard to – like channel any significant amount of energy towards a schedule because when you think of the term subject to change I don't think we've ever lived in an era where it's more applicable applicable than now because you're going to have even if you lay out a schedule and you get everything agreed to and you get testing um, nailed down which I think is the biggest components all of it um, you're still going to have you're still going to likely have players and staff members testing positive, even if it's not, you know, hopefully it's not to the degree where it's life threatening or life altering, but even if it's just, you know, asymptomatic and they'll be fine in a couple weeks and nothing will have any long-term ramifications on their health. The positive test is still going to knock them out of commission and it's still going to take teams off the schedule. So, you know, nothing is, even when you set that stuff, it's not going to be guaranteed because you're going to have, you're ultimately going to have, unless you're in bubbles, which, which, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen from a you know from a standpoint of what the WNBA and the NBA did it doesn't seem like it's going to be one set location for everything so you're going to throw travel into the mix you're going to throw exposures to different campuses in the mix and with that is just going to come exposure to the virus and with that's going to come cancellations so it's hard to just be overly optimistic about the season in general, let alone the performance of, or what the team is capable of because you just don't know what it's going to look like, you know? So I I don't really know. I think angst is probably the best word to say, what everybody's looking forward to They think this team has a lot of potential. They certainly do with the pieces coming back, but it's hard to really lock in um, to one emotion because of what the cloud that's kind of hanging over the season and and everything like that.
0: Gotcha. Now, like, and those are all really good points too. And so let's talk about Tyshawn Alexander. Um, Obviously, I think it was an unexpected departure um, he was definitely going to be the one big piece in order for them to have that, you know, final four potential. Um, but obviously he decided to forego his senior year. Uh, so first I definitely want to know, you know, what kind of went into, you know, his thought process of foregoing his senior year for one. And then number two, um, you know, what's it going to be like for this team to, you know, replace him in the starting lineup and, um, and essentially, you know, try to find a way to like, you know, make up for the production that he was able to put up a year ago.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know what, what the, uh, you know, main factors were in his decision. I think it's just, you know, one of those things where you have one of those breakthrough seasons, Um. And you're 22 years old already um, and and, the, and then the, the the senior season that you have to look forward to the one more year of college basketball doesn't necessarily have as many you know guarantees to it all of a sudden like with like I said we're not even we don't even have he'd be sitting here right now with the draft coming up November 18th with a college basketball season. Starting in theory on November 25th or 24th, whatever it is. Yep, 25th. And so it's like, you know what I mean? I think it's as the further we get away from this, it's hard to not make, it's hard to not say he, it's hard to say he didn't make the right decision. You know, because even on a personal basis, if you disagree with it or not, like he had a great junior year. He was of the age where you're pretty much. You know, the, where, you know, NBA evaluators don't like to take if you, if, you know, you, you see, you see, they seem to think you max out at a certain potential at a certain age range. So you kind of have to hit the ground running at that point in terms of the next level of your professional development. Um, and then from a financial standpoint, yeah, like that. I mean, that it just, that's a no brainer part of it. So right. even if he doesn't make so right. the NBA, so it's just, there's just too many decisions. There's too many reasons to not go at that age when you've done what you've done at that level at that point once what's his draft stop going to improve if he comes back and takes Creighton to a certain a certain spot in the postseason and you know becomes an all-american I mean you know Miles Powell and Marcus Howard both came back for their senior years they both were first team all-americans um, preseason and they were both all-americans at the end of it um where where are they getting drafted at? Not a whole lot different than they were the year before, right? They're kind of in the same spot, right? They didn't really improve their draft stock a whole lot. Miles Powell probably hurt it a little bit because he wasn't he didn't have as good of a senior year as he did a junior year because he was kind of a marked man. Um, and
0: and and he did have he did um he had an ankle injury early on, and then he missed two games with a with a concussion.
1: Yeah, so he, yeah, and that's that part. That's part of it too. So Tyson comes back, gets hurt. Isn't that 100 percent can't perform to his best? On top of the fact that teams are gunning for him every night, or know how to take away his strengths. And even um, Howard did in- too. Howard did, Howard Diggit, get yeah, yeah.
0: He he got banged up a little bit, like in the Xavier game on the road. Uh, he missed like the last.
1: Oh right, 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 yeah, yeah, the the, the nose thing. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, it's just you know, there's just there are there are factors that can work against your. Um, the chances that you have to to build on your stock a little bit if you come back and risk it in, in a senior season of college basketball. So, we saw it in front, close and personal in the in the Big East. So when he's looking at that, might not take your chances, especially with the variables that are in play that make it even more unpredictable that you'll be able to improve your stock. So, I think from a standpoint of what he what he decided to do the junior year he had, where in my opinion he was the best defender in the league and the best player in the league. Um, and I know talking to a Seton Hawk guy, you disagree with that probably, but um, I mean, I, I was I think, like the defense he played on miles Powell. I can, I like,
0: I can totally see that. And I can, I can totally see where he's coming from and in a way agree with that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I just, the, the, the thing for me is like, the defensive player of the year in the league couldn't stay on the floor against Creighton there was no matchup in the league where Tyshawn Alexander couldn't be on the floor guarding the best offensive weapon so that's just that that was the bottom line in that that regard for me Um, the the part of it where where he did what he did his junior year on top of the fact that he's kind of improved his stock via some like you know, these these workouts he's done and these these film sessions he's had with certain scouts and kind of the more they've been able to break down his film in the downtime um, and his metrics and everything. I think it stands out kind of who he is and he's really improved his draft stock in during quarantine and everything like that in some kind of weird way that really, where you see him going now in certain mocks and certain top and certain big boards, like that's probably where he was going to max out had he come back for his senior year. So I don't think there's any way – now, obviously, the draft is going to be the last final say in that. But even then, if he comes back, he's not guaranteed to be drafted a year later. So um, I don't know if you can even use hindsight as – you know on November 19th as a way to say Tyshawn made the wrong decision. I think I think everything that's – that everything that led up to the decision and everything that's happened since – have all just kind of reinforced uh, his decision to go pro as a good one. I think it was, it was the right time. And I, and I think Marcus Agurowski is going to be in the same position at the same point of his career that Tyshon was um, after this upcoming season, whatever, whatever it um, happens and however many games they get in because he's kind of on that same trajectory.
0: Yeah, so overall, I mean, without Tyshawn, this is still a really good group. You know, very guard-driven. They're probably going to revert to that small ball lineup that brought them so, so much success with you know Christian Bishop playing the five. Uh, but you know, you still bring back Denzel Mahoney, who was an incredible six man and kind of rejuvenated this group. You know, when he finally became eligible to play at the end of December, Damian Jefferson, after a a bit of a down 2018-19 season where, you know, we, you know, he kind of didn't really pan out the way everyone thought he would. And then he kind of shut those critics up in 2020. Marcus Zigarowski I think everyone knows what to get out of him. Same with Mitch Ballack as a senior. Um, but now you get Jacob Epperson. Hopefully you get him healthy this year. And then, and then you bring in a guy like Alex O'Connell from Duke, which I mean, that was I don't know, and I don't really, I don't really know if he's going to be able to play this year. But no, Alex is going to Alex
1: is going to sit out. Uh, <clears throat>
0: right. uh, yeah, that, that was one of the more surprising transfers I saw this uh, uh, this um, off season. I will say that, but still, though, they got they got to They still have a really good group coming back. So overall, um, you know, in the landscape of the Big East, where do you see this group uh, panning out?
1: Um, I mean just what I know about what I know going into this thing, uh I can't imagine that Seton Hall isn't gonna have some regression just because it's not even just Miles Powell. Like Quincy McKnight and Romaro Gill were huge pieces of their success, especially especially what made I mean, they won a lot of games on the defensive end of the floor. I I can't I don't know if there's maybe two or three games where I'm like they were just unstoppable offensively, and that's what won the day for them. Their, the games where they really earned big-time wins, it was because of how um, connected and, and tight they were on the defensive end of the floor. And I think McKnight at the point of attack and Gill at the rim were big parts of that. So losing those two um, is, is a big part of, I think, going to be part of their regression. Um, they're at worst or at best, they're going to have a transition where they get everybody on the same page. So, I mean, that's just part of college basketball. When you lose that much experience, you don't just hit the ground running after that. You've got to kind of have some bumps in the road along the way. Um, and then Quincy McKnight really made a lot of strides offensively, too. I mean, so it was – I mean, he was really – I don't know who won most improved player last year. I don't even know if they have that award. I'm so out of the loop right now six months into this. <laughs> I'm thing. trying to remember, I'm too. I don't, it, think they gave, I don't think they gave it out. Okay, so but uh, if there were one, it's Quincy McKnight. I mean, he's just—he was incredible. I mean, the offensive, his—you know—his production across the board and his, his three-point shooting got better. His his decision making got better, and obviously his defense kind of speaks for itself. I, I think you know, I'm, I, a, now skeptical that I think about it, I think it was Gil who got it. You're right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So I mean, if not Gil, it's it's McKnight, and if not McKnight, it's probably what Zagorowski or. um Colin Gillespie. So, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, they were so good. That that group, to lose that group, I mean, Sandro Mama Kelly's really is coming back. So, is he your, is he an A type player? You know what I mean? Like, or is he yeah. a more of a complementary piece? Yeah, like, yeah, no. I, I think the big think thing is. play through State him Hall. consistently? I'm not sure. So, yeah, the, big, big, to thing that part the big thing is the Seton Hall.
0: big thing is the Seton Hall. They finally, they got Bryce Aiken, who is going to take a lot of that pressure off, hopefully.
1: If and then healthy—that's the other thing. Like, yeah, that, yeah, that's true. His history isn't like you know the, the the most solid foundation to stand on in terms of his health. So, that's the question. I mean, they they just have questions. So I'm not—I don't consider it's them true. a contender right now. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. It's not. It that middle. The, I wouldn't be able to
1: make a fair argument for them. More the middle um, of the pack group, right? Yeah, I think. But I think there's going to be a lot of teams in the middle of the pack that might end up being good and still be tournament quality teams. And I think Seton Hall's in that conversation. I don't expect them to be a bottom feeder or anything like that right um butler's a team that seems like they're destined for a significant drop off um just because of who they lose uh again that's going to be a really difficult transition um and they don't exactly they have, don't have a history of um having freshmen that come in and kind of you know are alpha dogs from the jump they kind of develop them slowly along the way so i don't know if Butler's is going to be a team that's When you talk about teams that are in the middle of the pack, I'm not sure, Butler's one of those teams. I think they're kind of destined to hang around the bottom of the league. Um, Providence lost some key pieces of a veteran group that kind of got together late in the season. But even before that, you know, they didn't really perform very well in the non-conference. So they didn't put together a complete season, even with all the veteran leadership that they had. So um, they're going to go through a transition a little bit. Um, Obviously David Duke and – you know, Nate Watson and, and guys like that are, you know, have potential. They have Bynum coming off the transfer year. Um, is he a better point guard than, than Pipkins Pimpkin, would have been or that Duke had to be at times last year? We'll find out. We don't really know right now, though. So um, is can A.J. Reeves stay healthy? They seem like a middle-of-the-pack ceiling team to me um, as we're talking today. Yeah. Uh, Marquette, Lucy Marcus Howard, how do you fill that gap? What's that look like? What is your, how does your system run without an alpha duck like that? Like, do you make it more um, the sum of the parts as opposed to being so heavy on one guy having a high usage? Um, yeah, I think St. John's is going to make a jump because their recruiting has been better. They have a lot of guys back from last year. Finally, finally, someone who gets – like, I think St. John's is going be to
0: be that team that's going to surprise people. I mean, yes, they lose LJ. Yeah, I wouldn't be
1: but, surprised yeah. if they finish top four in the league. I You know, I just think they they the style they play, um, the recruiting they've done so far in Mike Anderson's short term, and Mike Anderson's, you know, kind of pedigree for coaching. Like, that guy does not – he does not produce – like losing programs if you know what I'm saying team some fan bases get kind of tired of his um it is consistency but they get kind of tired of his you know his plateauing in terms of the ceiling not being very high but in terms of success I mean other than Jay Wright there isn't a, a coach in this conference that has had as much success in terms of NCAA tournament and sustained success over a long period of time than Mike Anderson so um, I, I think St. John's is in a great place right now to be a top four team and make a jump. In even the with, my even without yeah. Figueroa, I think they're still a a pretty good team and can like make a push for the yeah. turn. I mean Figu- Figueroa was a really good versatile piece, but he wasn't super efficient. So it's not like when you have a when you have a a number one type player like that who isn't super efficient, I feel like you can replace that because he's not, he, he was their difference maker, but it's not like you can't find someone to replace that production. And I think they will. I think they'll be fine without him. Um, you know, he was good, but I don't think he was like a, a first team all big East caliber type of guy. You know what I'm saying? Even if he had come back to St. John's, I, I still have questions about his, his decision-making in terms of what shots he likes to take. Um, he's just kind of a playmaker and doesn't really work well within a system. I don't think you kind of have to let him go. So, you have to let him be. You have to let him loose, otherwise he doesn't really impact the game. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I, I like what they yeah. have coming the back. I'm curious to see how Mike Anderson pieces that together. Um, so I think they could be a top four team. I think UConn, from a pure talent standpoint, is probably the clear number three at this point in my mind, behind Villanova and Creighton, who are the clear one and two. Um, so I guess if I would like piece it together. Um, it's probably Creighton Villanova in some order at one and two. Right. And then there's a little bit of a gap, and then Yukon. And then I think St. John's is right mm-hmm. there at four. And then I think there's a little bit of a gap after that in terms of like Providence, Seton Hall, Marquette, Zayner, Marquette. Marquette. And then I think your bottom um, is Georgetown, Butler, DePaul. So that's kind of the way I see it shaken out. Um even though I'm not putting teams in specific spots, I kind of think those are the groupings um, as we're talking today that's the, those are, that's the grouping I feel confident in in terms of how it could potentially shake out based on who's back and who who I know and uh, who's already put in um, kind of the performance that you have to evaluate until someone makes a jump for a certain team or, or another. Right I don't know yeah. what you.
0: Yeah, and I I mean I, I you know I'll I'll have my own picks, you know, like I'm trying to decipher everything um you know right now. I'm trying to look at everyone's rosters and you know, the experience, the talent, you know, you, there's a lot of things to factor in there. So I you know, I got a lot more research that I got to do, you know. I I have I've got I've done a good amount of it, but I definitely want to do a little bit more just so I can have definite concrete picks that I can, you know, lay out there and say yeah. with full confidence rather than just well, I'm just winging it, you know.
1: You want to have a lot of confidence in the picks that are going to eventually be wrong.
0: I mean, isn't that how it always goes?
1: I mean, that's 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 the fun thing about preseason predictions. I think we put in a lot of time and trying to figure out what sounds good on that day, and then it's funny because I like to, you know, you look back on that and you're like, missed that one by a lot, missed that one by a lot, missed that one by a lot. Yet I went through the time and effort to make sure everything logically made sense, and then it still didn't play out. So I mean. It's just fun at the end of the day. It's just fun to try to, try to pick team where teams are going to land. So um, that's the grouping I feel confident in. But if you're, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to put anything substantial on it at all because I know how unpredictable college basketball is. I, I know in college basketball, I bet on experience. That's something to bet on. And Creighton and Villanova have a lot of experience. Everyone else, even as talented as UConn is, even as, even as much of a jump as I think St. John's is going to make in year two, no, like I wouldn't be surprised if either of those teams don't pan out for various reasons, chemistry, injuries. Um, right now, Creighton and Villanova are the only two teams right now in the conference that I feel like are sure things. You kind of know what they have, and if they stay healthy, they'll be good. You know what I'm saying? Like everything else could surprise me in either direction, good or bad. All
0: right, so, um, you know, before I let you go, you know, we we talked about, you know, how – you know, essentially predictions of – where you think teams are going to, you know, pan out, but, uh, you know, talking about the players specifically now, you know, you know, as of right now, who would be your all big East first team um, as it stands, you know, if you got a chance to pick your, pick your five, I feel like, I feel like I know at least one of them, which I think is the obvious. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think Marcus Zagorowski and Colin Gillespie are definitely two. Right. Um. I mean, they should be the preseason players of the year. I wouldn't even mind if they shared it, honestly, if they were co-preseason because their bodies their of bodies work are that established at this point. Man, that's a tougher question to answer than where the teams are going to shake out because – You
0: know, there's a lot of talented players.
1: Yeah, and then all they have to do is, you know, like I said, they have to kind of establish themselves as the alpha of the team and then – that's kind of the reason that team has success. So I don't really know if I can do that right now. Yeah, like, I mean, right. I mean, I could I
0: throw, throw, throw some names I out say there. No, I don't
1: want to answer that question. Is that okay? Like,
0: <laughs> I mean, you know. It's a subject. I don't want to talk about that. You know what? I, honestly, I got something of substance out of it, which was the fact that you think Gillespie and Zygurowski, you know, preseason Players of the yeah. year. one of the, one of them or both of them sharing co um, you know player of the year preseason the Big East.
1: Yeah, co POIs for those guys.
0: All right, yeah. so yeah, I'm mean, and so I mean, I guess other than that, though, you know, with this, with you know, with UConn joining the league back home, if you will, um, you mm-hmm. know, what else from your perspective, you know, are you looking forward to uh, with um, this Big East <sighs> basketball this season? I know, you know, I, I think uh, it's having, it, having it, having it.
1: Having it, I mean, <laughs> first. I I, I mean, I, I, I Were you in New York when everything went down? I don't know if you were. No,
0: I wasn't. I was. I mean, I was. I was here at home. Trust me, I was watching it at home, and believe me, it, I was devastated. Um, you know, hearing the news about uh, you know, when it when it got canceled at halftime of the uh, Creighton St. John's, ironically.
1: So basically, like, here's like my experience of covering the last one and a half college basketball games I covered were Creighton, Seton Hall in Omaha for basically something that Creighton had never achieved, right? So it's it's it was it was a historic game for Creighton. And for Seton Hall, there was a lot on the line. And the emotions that were in that building from the fans to the coaches to the players uh, to the type of game that it was So the celebration that ensued after Creighton won, just all the stakes that were involved in that game. Then the very next game I covered was Creighton St. John's at at Madison Square Garden, where (laughs) you're watching these guys come out for the floor for tip-off as it's scheduled. And you know every other league around the country has pretty much folded shop. They're like, nope, we're done. We understand there's a pandemic going on, and we need to kind of address that before anything else moves forward. And then you watch 20 minutes of basketball that didn't really mean anything. like, And you kind of knew it didn't mean anything. You kind of knew they're going to play to a certain point. Maybe it's halftime. Maybe they finish the game for some reason, and, and it's over. You knew it was going to be over. You knew there wasn't going to be – You knew whoever was coming next. Who was Marquette and Seton Hall was the next game, right? Butler Providence. Oh, Butler Providence, yeah. You knew that game wasn't getting played. Like, uh, you know, you could see all the whispers within the 500 people that were in the arena, which was weird in itself. I just don't want that feeling anymore. Like, I want something to have meaning. And for the players and coaches, I want them to have some meaning. Like, they put in a lot of time and effort. And watching the college football saga of it all and just kind of the – You know, the the tension that has arisen from that, um, the debate that has arisen from that, or should they play or should they not? It's like, this is college football's first go around with this. College basketball is entering their second one. They had an NCAA tournament ripped away from them. They had a a conference tournament ripped away from them. All those seniors, they didn't get a second chance, right? Yeah. None of the seniors for college basketball were given waivers to play again. They were said, your careers are over as they stand on March 13th, basically.
0: Yeah, just a big huge ugly asterisk.
1: Yeah. So for their sake, I want them to have something because they're in in the big picture of things that are are, you know, are unfair. They're owed something. They're owed a season. They're owed a tournament. They're owed a finish. So it, it you know when I try to like separate my mind from the fact from the real life ramifications of this thing where people are dying and people are getting sick and people are losing their jobs. I, 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 I center in on the players who don't have a lot of time left in college basketball, who want the experience of playing in the tournament. You know, Marcus Zagorowski is you, you've agreed he's going to be the preseason player of the year in the big East, if not, um, share it with Gillespie. He's going to be an All American. And based on what everybody's opinion is, he's he's a draft eligible, likely this is his last year of college basketball, whatever it looks like kind of guy, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, I, yeah, I can get behind that.
1: Okay, so he's never played an inspector tournament game before. Like, I just want him to have one. Yeah, he and he's only I, played I, it. Mitch, Mitch, Ballack, Mitch Ballack played in one as a freshman. I want him to have another one. Uh, Denzel Mahoney's never played in one. I want him to have one. Uh, Damian Jefferson's never played in one. I want him to have one. Like, I just want these guys who have put in all this work to have something to play for. And if whatever whatever needs to happen to make that happen from a testing standpoint, from an isolation standpoint, away from fans, um, away from a student body, um, whatever ramifications it has, I know that these guys are going to be willing to make the sacrifice that they need to make in order to preserve whatever they can for a season and whatever they can to create an opportunity to play the NCAA tournament for themselves. So that's what I want for them. That's it. I don't, I have no, I don't care what happens. I don't care where they finish. I have no expectations for anything. Um, The only level of disappointment I'll have at the end of this is if they get another NCAA tournament taken away from them because people can't do the right thing. Within the within society itself, because of the pandemic, and it takes it away from them again. I just won't. That's that's something that I'm going to be pretty upset with if that gets if that happens again. Because, like I said, they're not going to get a second chance. They didn't, and the the seniors that lost it uh, the opportunity last year didn't get one, so they won't get one. So, that's all I want for them is to have an opportunity because that's their dream. Before the NBA stuff, before all the professional stuff, before getting paid to do it. They dream of playing in March Madness. I want them to have that opportunity.
0: That's the bottom line. You know, I, I honestly, I, I don't think I could have said it any better. Um, Matt, thank you for the time, for the Creighton perspective, for Big East and college basketball perspective. You really do have a great perspective on all those things and actually having that big worldview like you do. So it was great chopping it up with you. And, um, you know, thanks for taking the time all the way from, uh, from Omaha. And, you know, I think, you know, just talking about everything, you know, I'm just dying to see college basketball return, you know, yeah. you know, Thanksgiving Eve, you know, obviously I want it to be done, you know, as a fan, I obviously want it back, but I obviously like you wanted it to be done safely. And in a way that is going to be, is going to allow the season to, you know, flow through without any issues.
1: Mm-hmm. I appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun. Um, we definitely need to do it again. Maybe during the season if we have one. Hopefully. Oh yeah, I mean In the yeah. heart of the heart of Big East play right before a Seton Hall Creighton tip off. Maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll be. I, I mean, personal game previews. I mean, you know, normally, I, I mean, certain game previews will warrant it. I feel like Seton Hall Creighton, considering it'll, you know, a rematch from you know the regular season finale from this past season. Yeah, we we can absolutely do that. So yeah, be or on the Big East
1: If we do a Big East Roundtable, I'm definitely hitting. You, oh, so.
0: you're yeah. getting you're giving me ideas, man. Season <laughs> two is about to be popping. Matt, uh, thanks for the time. Big East Roundtable. I don't know when it's gonna be, but thanks to Matt for the Matt. Thanks again for the idea. We are definitely doing it at some <laughs> point. in Season two.
1: Appreciate you, Tim. Take care out there. All right.
0: More on the igloo coming up after this. Welcome back inside the igloo. So, let's get you caught up to speed on what's been going on over the past week. Well, right now, everything has been really helter-skelter. Let's put it that way. Because teams are scrambling to schedule games, put their schedules together in order for there to be a college basketball season. And that's been really tough for some teams. Right now, Seton Hall is currently still locked into the Charleston Classic, they could be added to another tournament. And the reason why is because a couple of Big East teams are not participating in these events that would be in the Orlando bubble. Xavier was one of those teams. Instead, they're having an MTE, short for multi-team event, which I I did, never would have expected. This would be a term I'd be using in 2020. So Xavier's going to be having an MTE at the CentOS Center. Georgetown dropped out of the Wooden Legacy, which includes Kansas and UCLA. No one knows what they're going to do. Creighton, they're still going to be participating in the battle for Atlantis, which is now going to be in South Dakota. However, Duke won't be in it. So maybe that's going to open things up for the Blue Jays to win that tournament. It would be a big, big opportunity And something important on the resume of the Blue Jays, if that were to happen. But, you know, we're still a long ways away from that. But again, all these teams are scrambling to put these schedules together. And it's just really, really tough. Uh, For example, you know, several teams have postponed scheduled games that they were supposed to start like this year. Like, uh, for example, something surprising that happened, Gonzaga scheduled Iowa, which, which was a Final Four matchup, by the way, in the simulated bracket I did, and a matchup between two potential one-seeds in the NCAA tournament. I think Gonzaga will be a one-seed, and Iowa has a very good chance to be a one-seed with the best player in the country in Luca Garza. But as for the rest, I mean, St. John's also in, dropped out of their event, the NIT season tip-off. Villanova's still good in their event. Same with UConn. However, Butler dropped out of their, their event, which was the Fort Myers classic, I believe it's called. Don't quote me on it, but I know it was the event that would normally take place in Fort Myers. And then... I don't think DePaul had an event. Marquette. I believe they're still supposed to be in their event. The same goes for Providence. So. Not really sure what to make of everything that's happening. It's all very, very confusing and tough to interpret, but. You know, with some inside information, hopefully if I can get a guest on who can shed some light on it, it'll definitely help answer some questions for sure. And then, you know, moving forward, uh, some big news that happened on Friday. uh, You know, obviously I had Matt Marinus, you know, Covers Creighton for White and Blue Review. And uh, speaking of Creighton, some unfortunate news uh, happened late Friday night. The legendary St. Louis Cardinals pitcher Bob Gibson, he passed away at the age of 84. On the anniversary of, uh, 42nd anniversary of the the day he struck out a World Series record, 17 batters, when he did it against the Detroit Tigers at Bush Stadium on October the 2nd, 1968. And for those of you that don't know, why am I talking about a baseball guy on a College Hoops podcast? Well, Bob Gibson was a really damn good basketball player, too, at Creighton. You know, this was during a time, by the way. Where freshmen weren't allowed to play. So Bob Gibson, unlike a lot of athletes, he only played three years of college basketball. And he was an Omaha native. He attended Omaha Technical High, played track, he was on the track team, played basketball and baseball. And The funny thing was he was rejected by Indiana after they had stated their black athlete quota had already been filled. So a blessing in disguise as he ended up at Creighton where he was a sociology major. And in his his junior year, He averaged 22 points a game and was named named 13 Jesuit All-American. It's pretty impressive. And that spring he got married. And he also garnered some interest from the Harlem Globetrotters. And although he did sign with the St. Louis Cardinals in which he got a $3,000 $3,000 bonus for it. He did play a year for the Harlem Globetrotters. So, of course, I had to make that plug with, obviously, with Gibson being an Omaha native and a graduate of Creighton and a member of their basketball program. Where, again, 22 points a game as a junior. Which I think is incredibly impressive. And as I'm pulling up the all-time statistics... Uh, from Creighton University, compiled by former guest of the show, Rob Anderson. And again, shout out to Rob. Obviously, everyone knows who the all-time leading scorer is in the history of Creighton basketball, and that is, of course, Doug McDermott. But, in terms of... The all time leading scorers in the history of Creighton basketball. Bob Gibson is right up there with some of the best to ever do it. And it it's not gonna lie. It is very, very tough to like zoom in, but as I'm finally doing it now, <laughs> and I'm sorry you have to listen to it, you know, just look at some of the great names on this list uh, some of the guys that he's in the same company with. You know, he only played from 1954 to 57. He scored 1,272 points in his career. Some of the notable names ahead of him, Marcus Foster, Benoit Benjamin, Paul Silas, Kyle Korver, Rodney Buford, Doug McDermott. Those were some of the notable names ahead of him. And as I'm looking at this now, you know, you know, Foster, Tuttle, Sears, Lawson, Young, Cole, Harmon, Cole again, McKenna, Johnson, Benjamin, Moore, Silas, Apke, Funk, Corver, Portman, Gallagher, Harsett. So he's in the top twenty-five in the history of Creighton basketball in scoring. So sorry you had to uh listen to me kind of rummaging through that all-time list. And this was the list, you know, heading into the 2019-20 season. Again, shout out to Rob Anderson for having that available in the uh, 2019-20 Creighton Media Guide uh, prior to the start of this past season. Obviously, it's probably looking a lot different now with uh, Tyshawn Alexander. Marcus Zigorowski is probably going to pass him. This year, along with Mitch Ballack. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I couldn't go without mentioning it. Bob Gibson, a true all time sports legend, not just with Creighton, but for all of sports. You know, he was one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1981 and arguably in the modern era had the greatest pitching season of all time. A 1.12 ERA. He was so good that Major League Baseball was forced to lower the mound to level the playing field and not have Bob Gibson be that dominant ever again. And honestly... Granted, 1968 was an incredible year across the board for a lot of pitchers, one of them being Denny McClain, who was on the Tigers, who beat the Cardinals in that year's World Series, but no pitcher had a more dominant year that year. You know, no disrespect to Denny McClain and his 34 wins than Bob Gibson in his 1.12 ERA. And where, where was Bob Gibson from? Omaha, somewhere in middle America, as the Counting Crow said. Rest in power, Bob. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Igloo. On the next episode, I got a special collab with the Front Office podcast. As these are guys that I went to college with that I have been. In- collectively spoken to together in a long time uh we chopped it up and man it was a lot of fun so i hope you're gonna enjoy that just as much as i enjoyed putting that together so be on the lookout for that on the next episode of the igloo coming up a week from today so until next time it's timmy ice signing off thanks for tuning in i'll catch you next time